Hello and welcome to episode 257 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Even though the Chinese leader can't attend COP26, we can certainly head to Glasgow for another episode from the UK's 37th most popular UK true crime podcaster. Look out for my cover of All I Want for Christmas is 36. As always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon. Not just those Patreon supporters watching the live broadcast this evening, but the new members of this most exclusive of clubs. That is Jules Martin, Natalie Natalie and James Davidson. Thank you all so much for your support, which is much appreciated. Today's podcast is sponsored by Babbel. For most of us, learning a second language in school wasn't exactly a high point in our academic careers. Even now I can recall our French teacher's frustration with our lack of learning. But now, thanks to Babbel, there's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. Whether you'll be travelling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. That is key for people like you and me, right? Use it in the real world. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts, you know, real people. So you learn useful vocabulary and not those meaningless phrases. The other bonus for busy people like you and I is that Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. And Babbel's teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective across multiple studies. So why not start your new language learning journey today with Babbel? Right now, Babbel is offering our listeners six months free with a purchase of a six-month subscription with promo code TRUECRIME in one word. So please go to babbel.com forward slash play and use promo code TRUECRIME for an extra six months free. That's uk.babbel.com forward slash play, promo code TRUECRIME. This podcast is sponsored by Best Fiends. I love autumn, don't you? Seeing the trees change colour and lots of crisp, lovely long walks with my dogs. To let your brain feel those lovely autumn feelings all the time, download Best Fiends now. I've told you about Best Fiends for months now, so if you haven't played yet, firstly, why not? You'll love it. It's a great game where you collect lots of cute characters who help you on your journey. On the way you solve fun puzzles, which really engage your brain. I love the bright and colourful gameplay, but with my dreadful internet coverage here, Best Fiends is amazing for me, as you don't need the internet to play. And of course, it isn't just a game you play on your own. I play with friends and family all over the world, which always gets super competitive, as you can imagine. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends about the R, Best Fiends. So let's set some context for this story by playing our guest of the month and year game. Right up there with when your alarm goes off on a Monday morning as your favourite time of the week. Boy's Own topped the UK charts with No Matter What. In the US, it was Brandy and Monica with The Boy Is Mine. And in Australia, the third top-selling album this year, 
I think it went down from a previous position, was the soundtrack from Titanic. <laughs> Not sure if that works. In the news this month, the first ever episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, hosted by Chris Tarrant, debuted on ITV in Britain. Ford launched its new focus range of family hatchback saloons and estates, which were to replace the long-running escort. And in Northern Ireland, David Trimble of the Ulster Unionist Party met Gerry Adams of Sinn Féin, the first such meeting between Republicans and Loyalists since 1922. Did you get the month and year? It was September 1998. Okay, so let's get on with today's story. Cantine is a suburban area of Glasgow, north of the River Clyde, and to the east end of the city. Cantine has long been celebrated for its seemingly endless supplies of coal, which across generations helped to power Glasgow. The population of the district of Cantine is not an especially large one, and on the 5th of September 1998, the tight-knit district was devastated after a particularly sickening incident that took place in one of the area's thoroughfares, Abbey Hill Street. Marilyn McKenna was a single mum of three young children. Brian, 14, was her eldest, followed by her nine-year-old daughter Laura and then five-year-old Ross. As many of you will know, bringing up children is certainly no easy task and bringing up three as a single parent really is no mean feat. The 37-year-old would juggle home life with multiple jobs, all in that age-old quest to put food on the table for her young children. If the stresses of the everyday weren't enough though, Marilyn was also living with a hideous trauma which lingered over her every move and every action, something which she herself had even predicted would lead to her death. And the story you're about to hear, in many ways, is a depressingly familiar one. Marilyn and 35-year-old Stuart Drury's relationship began with all the usual hallmarks of a normal couple as they enjoyed those first flourishes of love. Drury was apparently a highly attentive boyfriend and in the early stages, he made a massive fuss of Marilyn. He made her feel really, really special. When Marilyn spoke of her new partner, her eyes lit up and she would become a picture of animation and excitement. She would tell her sister Aileen everything about how wonderful Stuart was making her life and just how happy she was with him. It wasn't long before Stuart moved into her house in Ballinork in the north of Glasgow. Again, at first, this was a blissfully happy time, with Drury ensuring that he looked to be the epitome of a model boyfriend. He regularly helped her with the household chores and he performed a number of romantic gestures. Marilyn's seemingly idyllic relationship would, within mere weeks, begin to escalate into an unforgiving nightmare of the worst proportions. Initially, Drury's descent into his real self began with the emergence of bitterness and jealousy. He would make his displeasure very well known to Marilyn if she went out for an evening without him. He would quiz her unrelentingly about where she'd been, perhaps who she'd spoken to, and generally he made her feel like a prisoner in her own home. This strategy is one which will certainly be familiar to all listeners of this podcast and viewers of true crime documentaries. 
The abuser seemed to take great delight in restricting their victim in almost every way, almost to a point of suffocation, and in the process, eroding their self-confidence and reducing their world to nothing other than, in this case, Marilyn and Drury himself. It is a reality that in so many cases, victims are unable to prize themselves away from such relationships. It is so incredibly difficult to do so. However, approximately six months into their relationship, seeing how the situation was deteriorating, Marilyn did summon the courage to ask Drury to move out of her home. This was a request that didn't sit at all well with Stuart Drury. At this point, he unveiled just how explosive his temper could be. He looked at Marilyn and then punched her in the face, breaking her nose. Drury was a decent-sized unit standing at six foot two, and he totally dwarfed the diminutive Marilyn. And the cowardly nature of the assault was concrete proof that a decision to oust him from their home had been the correct one. Drury's punishment after Marilyn bravely pressed charges against him was a fine of £400. Hardly the deterrent that was required in this situation. Sadly, this so-called punishment had zero effect on Drury, and in fact appeared to serve only in irritating him to a point that he would now stalk Marilyn with terrifying regularity. On one occasion, November 1997, he visited the chip shop where Marilyn had been working part-time. With him, he carried a sharp implement, and upon seeing her in the shop, he ran the blade across his own throat and he cut it, drawing blood, as he told Marilyn he would do if she would not take him back. Seeing Drury do this, Marilyn was terrified and she didn't know quite what to do. She ran and locked herself in the toilet of the shop in an effort to steer clear of him, but he followed her and began to break the door down, shouting as he did so. Other colleagues in the shop knew that they needed to do something, but they were concerned about approaching him as he had a knife, and who could tell what he was capable of? And so they phoned the police who arrived and escorted him from the premises. He was charged with breaching the peace. Yet these unsavoury actions, cutting his own throat, and even breaking Marilyn's nose, were to Drury's mind only committed because he loved her so much. After shifts at work in the evenings, Marilyn would be riddled with fear that Drury would follow her home and perhaps repeat the physical assault which he had shown he was so capable of doing. A male colleague would drive her home, but then this led Drury to assume that this was some sort of sexual liaison, which would mean he would telephone Marilyn and leave vile messages for her. Drury became more and more obsessed, and eventually he shadowed Marilyn's every move. Dropping her children off at school and nursery, he would be there. Coming home from work, he would be there. Marilyn's constant reporting of such incidents to the police began to weigh heavily on her. How is it possible to have any sense of normality in your life when you are constantly terrified by this man and what he could be capable of doing to you? Friends and family watched as she became a shadow of herself as the toll of fear began to take its ugly grip. She understandably became hugely frustrated by the lack of action taken by the authorities, despite her regular reports to police. 
now exhausted, Marilyn took a course of action which was likely her last resort and something which she would not have wished to entertain. As she could see no conclusion to Drury's reign of terror and increasingly fearful of the impact his behaviour would have on her own parents' health and her children, Marilyn agreed to move back in with her former partner. This time there was no honeymoon period. The new beginning was not a happy one and Drury's behaviour failed to alter. In many ways he worsened. One of Marilyn's few joys in life was going out for her sister Aileen, but even this, Drury prohibited her from doing. In this time the once close sisters regrettably did not see much of each other. That was until one evening when Aileen handled a call for Marilyn's son Ryan. The boy was terrified and was pleading for his auntie to come to the house as Stuart was, I quote, going off his head. Aileen and her husband set off immediately to the house where they came upon the sight of the children and Marilyn on the street, all in their night clothes, and terrified of the man inside the house who had dumped them outside. Aileen and her husband offered to house Marilyn and the children, but Marilyn decided to go the more official channel which she hoped might ensure that her worries would be listened to. She opted to take the children to a safe hostel run by Women's Aid, set up for victims of domestic violence. She hoped that by taking residence in an establishment well-versed in dealing with such cases, that her voice may finally be heard and that she could get the help that she so desperately required. The address and contact details of the refuge were of course confidential. But unfortunately, this wasn't the safe haven she'd expected and she was stunned to feel a call one night from Drury himself who chillingly told her, you won't ever get away from me. The refuge, with Drury now aware of her presence there, became somewhere she had to flee from. She had, she thought, no option now other than to return to her own home. As we know only too well, the awful situation in which Marilyn found herself was sadly not an isolated incident. In 1998, when Marilyn moved to the refuge, there were 9,000 cases of domestic violence recorded in Strathclyde alone. 9,000 Strathclyde alone. But even amidst this lofty figure, senior officials believe this statistic to be merely the tip of the iceberg. 9,000 individual nightmares being lived just in Strathclyde. As we said, Marilyn had reported Drury to the police on multiple occasions and the orders cast upon him that banned him from going near her had been major fails. He didn't care. A final throw of the dice, as it seemed to her, came in the form of Marilyn consulting a lawyer. The lawyer applied for an interim measure which at least gave Marilyn some hope that action was being taken. Sadly though, due to a loophole in Scots law, this interdict counted for nothing as Drury and Marilyn were not married, or indeed even living together. Had they been married, the order could enable police involvement immediately, whereas an unmarried woman could potentially face the prospect of months and months of court wranglings before anything could be done. And so to this end, Marilyn felt she had very little protection from the legal system.
It seemed that Drury was all too aware of this, and he persisted in his mental torture of Marilyn. Twinned with his propensity to inflict physical harm on her, it was perhaps the psychological torment which he appeared to revel in the most. When he was subject to a sheriff court order to stay away from Marilyn, he completely ignored it, threatening that he would kill her and throw acid in her face. Drury smashed the windows to Marilyn's house, managed to sneak inside the property and cut up her clothes, and he even smeared dog excrement on the front door. In the year subsequent to the rather bizarre chip shop incident, Stuart Drury was charged three further times for a breach of the peace. Indeed, across the duration of the pair's relationship, Drury had been charged by police with domestic violence offences six times in a three-year period. If we consider just this point in isolation, it really does err on the side of nonsensical. An individual can be free to rack up an array of such offences against one victim. Yet, sadly, it's a fact that we've become far too accustomed to, and the law even now continues to appear to allow such perpetrators to prevail with their manipulative and controlling actions, with judicial sanctions only landing at a point which is often sadly too late, and another person has been lost to domestic violence. According to the Crime Survey for England and Wales in the year ending March 2020, an estimated 5.5% of adults aged between 16 and 74, that's 2.3 million people, had experienced domestic abuse in the last year. On the 2nd of September 1998, Marilyn made a call to her sister Aileen and chillingly forewarned of what she thought Drury may do next. She said, The next time you see me, I'll be lying dead in the pool of blood. The call turned out to be horribly prophetic. Only two days later, on the 4th of September, Marilyn and Aileen went out for a quiet drink together. The pair chatted, and the evening was a welcome distraction from the horrors that Marilyn had endured. The evening got better still when Marilyn began to receive attention from a good-looking man and the pair began chatting and laughing together. Aileen was happy to see her sister finally able to enjoy herself, and so she made her excuses to leave the pub and left Marilyn alone with this man. Marilyn invited him back to her house, her mind finally distracted from the madness of Stuart Drury. She may have felt safety in the arms of another man, and perhaps assumed that even had Drury been stalking her, he surely would not bother her while she was in tow with the man. As they cozied up inside, little could they know that Drury, armed with a sports bag equipped full of tools, was trying to prize his way inside. At some point Marilyn heard Drury, and she and the man rushed from the house and into the street. Stuart Drury was right behind them, chasing the pair, brandishing a claw hammer. His intent was clear. The man fled in one direction, with Drury now left to continue his pursuit of Marilyn. She had no escape. He quickly caught up with her in nearby Abbey Hill Street, where he unleashed his violent and merciless attack. He rained repeated blows down upon her face and neck with horrifying savagery. 
an eyewitness would later claim that Jury had struck her head and face at least ten times. Within a matter of seconds, Stuart Drury had completed his grotesque attack and fled the scene. Meanwhile, Marilyn had been left lying in the pool of her own blood, as she had predicted. Paramedics were quickly on the scene and confronted by an appalling sight. Marilyn's juggler had been severed and her jaw torn from her face. She suffered fractures to her skull, and though she was still alive at this time, in reality, she had no hope of pulling through after suffering such terrible injuries. She bravely clung to life, managing to reach the Southern General Hospital, but here, surrounded by her loving family, Marilyn died. The statistics concerning domestic violence needed amending once more. Stuart Drury was rapidly apprehended. This was a murder case where the police did not have far to look in terms of identifying a suspect. When police called at Marilyn's parents' house to take her mum to identify the body, she advised police immediately of who had killed her daughter. The police took the details of where Drury was likely to be and they quickly found him at his sister's house. Only hours after the attack he was arrested, his clothes still splattered in Marilyn's blood. At the custody suite, officers removed any possessions on his person. One such item summed up Drury. He had a photograph of Marilyn, which he had cut in half with a knife. Stuart Drury stood trial at the High Court in Glasgow, charged with murder in February 1999. The jury and courtroom were exposed to some dreadful evidence, ranging from taped recordings of hateful voicemail messages that Drury had left for Marilyn, to the photograph showing parts of Marilyn's teeth and jaw lying in the street. The Crown pathologist stated to the court that Marilyn's injuries were the worst she'd ever witnessed in the course of hundreds of murder post-mortem examinations. In the witness box, Drury had his story well rehearsed as he attempted to explain why he killed Marilyn. He denied murdering her, instead claiming he'd been driven through a jealous rage to kill her after finding her with another man on the night of her death. His jealousy, he claimed, demonstrated his love for Marilyn. He did not dispute the facts of the case in terms of how Marilyn had met her death. The issue faced by the jury, however, was whether he was guilty of murder or culpable homicide. Drury's defence focused upon this point of law, that the jury ought to consider their verdicts in terms of culpable homicide rather than murder, as he had not intended to kill Marilyn and had only carried out the attack due to provocation of sexual infidelity. In England and Wales, this would not be enough to form the basis of defence, but in Scotland it could, and Drury and his legal team played upon this. On the 15th of February, Drury was unanimously convicted of murder. He appealed his conviction, and in 2001 his conviction was quashed, leading to a retrial being brought forward. Five judges at the Court of Criminal Appeal ruled that the original trial judge had made errors in his addressing of the jurors, and in doing so had misdirected the jury on the law of provocation. On Friday the 17th of August 2001, Drury would once again face justice, in the hope that his sentence would be downgraded to the lesser-weighted culpable homicide 
on the grounds of diminished responsibility. A jury of nine women and six men, however, found Stuart Drury guilty for the second time of Marion's murder. Lord Dawson told him, You've been convicted by the jury of the crime of murder. There is only one sentence I can pass on you, and that is one of life imprisonment. If the jury had any lingering doubts as to whether they'd reached a correct verdict, their findings were perhaps confirmed when Drury's previous convictions were revealed. He'd been convicted and even jailed for an assault on a former girlfriend. He'd stalked her and terrorised her in much the same fashion as he had Marilyn. That victim had too called the police several times, but again hadn't received any form of protection. In the aftermath of Marilyn's tragic murder, her sister Aileen pursued with dogged determination to seek more clarity and increased understanding on domestic violence within the justice system. Quite how a man like Stuart Drury was able to conduct such a reign of terror that ended so horribly on a Glasgow street just made no sense, especially to Marilyn's family. Drury had made several court appearances, but even then, he'd still been free to abuse Marilyn. Aileen said, There's some kind of failing going along the line. I feel there has to be training for the police. The attitude about stalking has to change. And I feel it has to go from there onto the judicial system, whereby they have to see it as being a serious criminal offence. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It is yet another terrible story where a woman has been stalked by a man who cannot accept the end of a relationship. Has much changed in the 20 or so years since Marilyn lost her life? I'm not sure really, are you? But with the number of cases we still hear about on a weekly basis, even if it has changed, it has to change more. And as with so many podcasts we hear about, what really needs to change is men and at a very early age too. Following the recent tragic murder of Sarah Everard, there been lots of talk about how this may happen, but I don't know about you, I fear that talk is all it is. Which means that my daughter and your daughter, and in the future their potential daughters, will still face, I fear, the same threat from losers such as Drury. As for him, well, he's in his cell, There isn't much to say, is there? But as usual, our hearts go out to Marilyn's family and friends. I hope they've managed to have some sort of joy in their lives after that terrible horror they lived through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspects of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group. It is many things, but it's never dull. And to support the show and catch the bonus episodes and other exclusive content and become a better person, why not support me on Patreon? It keeps me producing the UK's 37th most popular podcast every week and you get all these in-jokes about the mighty Leeds United, the Kings of Leon and Saunas in Rochdale. What more could you ask for? Just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. So it just leaves me to thank you once again for taking the time to join me. I'll be back this time next week. So until then, please do take it easy. And despite all the others, 
stay classy. Cheerio for now.